0: Welcome to ACFM. I'm Nadia Idle, and today I'm ecstatic to be chatting with Ece Tomilkuran about the politics of crowds. Ece, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Nadia. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I need to say at this stage that I'm very sad that distance and COVID restrictions mean that I'm not able to offer you a lavish breakfast (laughs) and that we're not sitting together um, at the moment uh, and we're separated by distance. I love feeding my guests. I also love... seeing them uh, in real life. And I kind of, I've got this zaatar made by Lebanese mountain monks, no less. And I oh kind of God. think you would have enjoyed <laughs> to have that because I know you have a uh, an affinity with, with Beirut. But unfortunately... We are just sounds to each other at the um,
1: moment. consider that you owe me one. <laughs> okay, fine.
0: That's, that's that's a deal. That's a deal. And you did say when you very kindly uh, signed How to Lose a Country for Me, which we'll talk about in a second, via my friend Mariam in, in Edinburgh. You said in, in as you signed it in August twenty nineteen, next time face to face, and it didn't happen. But maybe next time. Maybe yes, next time. During face-to-face. a breakfast
1: and uh, you know, you can be sure that I'll
0: mind you this breakfast. Okay, I will. I, Promise. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy I'm happy for that. And so I guess my first question to you is, do you have enough of the Turkish walnut jam that appears in the book to last you through the Croatian
1: winter? Well, you know what, I, I have chosen the best country to live in uh, on several levels, because it's on the, um, you know, fringes let's say of Europe and this country does not consider itself European uh, and it doesn't consider itself Balkan either it's something in between it's um, like if you ask me it's the optimum uh you know blend of Balkan and European cultures but one thing only one thing about this country bothers me a lot they don't have a culture of breakfast and in a country when there is where there is no culture of breakfast I don't feel uh, completely at home <laughs>
0: that's really
1: interesting but yeah. but but Zagreb has loads of bakeries doesn't it oh yeah they're big on bakeries okay uh, yeah which makes you a fat person <laughs>
0: <laughs> but basically Especially while people. writing a book <laughs> but hey we can talk about breakfast and food for a really really long time but, uh, <laughs> but today um we're going to be talking about crowds and um, without further ado I would like to give you a uh, a small, maybe big introduction and talk a little bit about why I wanted to speak to you today before we jump into the subject. So, um, for those of you who don't know Ece, Ece Koran is one of Turkey's best-known novelists and political commentators. She's contributed to, and there's a long list here, The Guardian, New Statesman, New Left Review, Le Monde Diplomatique, Frankfurter, Rundschau, if I'm pronouncing that correct, <laughs> Der Spiegel, New York Times, and, and so many others. Her books on investigative journalism broach subjects that are highly controversial in Turkey such as the Kurdish and Armenian issues and freedom of expression Um, and your novel Women Who Blow On Knots um, it's won several awards hasn't it? The Pen Translates Awards but also something in Edinburgh Mm -hmm. um, I think and it's sold over 120,000 copies uh, in Turkey in Turkish and it's been published in translation in Germany, Croatia, Poland, Bosnia France uh, with forthcoming editions in China, Italy, and the USA. Um, You were born into a political family. family. You uh, studied to be a lawyer, but you never practiced your profession, except for once, (laughs) to defend Kurdish children in a political class action as a symbolic act. Um, And you were bored by law school, it says here. Um, You started to work for the newspaper, which I'm not going to be able to pronounce. Could you pronounce it for me? Jumhuriyet. Jumhuriyet. Okay, that's that sounds like the Arabic. Uh, during uh, your second year in university, um, and then you grew in your journalism. Um, and then, and we'll get to this, uh, you were fired from your job. Um, it also says um, here that you've been voted twice as one of the 10 most influential people on social media, which is amazing, but also a terrible burden. How do you cope with that?
1: (laughs) I I don't, I don't. I'm like, uh, I have long stories about this. Uh, when, uh, When the term social media harassment was not invented yet, I was social media, I was one of the victims of that harassment, which was, you know, steered by the government trolls and so on. So, yeah, it wasn't invented yet, and I was the victim, so it felt so lonely, that place. Oh, i uh, sorry about But today, today, it's easier, because we now know that there are, you know, we are living in a post-truth world, so it's easier to manage that kind of attack, I think. Yeah.
0: And that and that's good to hear. Um, and I came to you because I was in my local bookshop, and I could see the hardback version of How to Lose a Country, the Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, um, on the shelf. Um, and I kind of, I, I held up the book and, and the woman who worked in the bookshop came over to me and she said, look, if you buy one non-fiction book this year, buy this one. It's really good. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. And I like, and I really, really like that. And there was something she was really saying, oh, this is really good. and And I'm very... I, I have to admit I, I don't buy nonfiction titles very often simply because I tell myself why do I need to know the detail of all the bad news that I knew, know anyway <laughs> so unless I feel like there's a call to arms or there's some kind of you know action involved I I, I tend to get my news you know from articles and 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 pieces um, etc rather than from books but but I picked up your book Eche, and I was addicted from page one I mean. Not only are you, you're just a great storyteller, and the plane in which you're discussing the the step, you know, the steps towards authoritarianism um, and how it happens, it's it's a different texture and a different level of conversation, which I I I've not found, you know, since then even in in public public discourse, even though it's. Um, it is it is being picked up uh, a little bit more. Um, but just a very, very quick synopsis of this book. You say that you wrote it as a guide for the West in an age of Trump and Brexit. Is that is that a fair representation?
1: Well, yeah, but not limited to that, we must mm-hmm. add, I think. And it's a book that brings together sort of, I, I, this is why I love it.
0: So I've picked up some of my favourite bits. It's a, it's a book that brings together a story of, you know, an authorit- authoritarian coup in 48 hours, the, bucket, the ice bucket challenge, Trump, Farage and Brexit, Margaret Thatcher's handbag, a frustrating chat between Aristotle and a right-wing populist, and my favourite bit, what it's like to feel like a panda up for adoption on a charity <laughs> website. When faced with the question, "What can I do for you?" It's so beautifully written, and we're going to put a link to the show notes. I know it's not in the show notes. Sorry. I know it's not. You're not. You're not your most recent work, but um, I highly, highly recommend this for anyone um, in the UK who's uh, saying, "What's happened to this country? What's happened to my neighbours? and What's happened to this world, and who am I, and how do I interact with this this um, forward step of authoritarianism? So, thank you for writing that
1: book. Oh, um, God, yeah, thank you. Thank you.
0: I, I really, really, really do love it, and I started a small left book club just to talk about. I, I brought it to my left book club. I absolutely adore this book, um, and you know, not just in this book, but in other. Um, uh, other pieces you've written and, you know, interviews with you. You discuss these very ACFM concepts, which we love discussing on the show, like, you know, melancholy, joy, despair. And each one of these can be a three-hour conversation (laughs) between (laughs) us. Uh, But uh, unfortunately, we only have time for one today, and that is the politics of crowds. So with your permission, I would like to uh, do a quick retelling of Mm -hmm. a story um, in chapter in the chapter called "Let Them Laugh at Horror" from from your book How to Lose a Country, uh, is that all right? And that will take us directly. Please to go ahead. Crowds. Okay, so to set the scene uh, for our listeners, so it's the morning after the night before. You're sitting around for breakfast with some friends, uh, and you're being a killjoy. And your friends are saying to you, "The problem with you, Eche." Why you didn't enjoy last night's dancing or party is that you haven't joined, quote unquote, the carnivalesque kind of fun that comes out of being a chemical brother, a part of the chemical brotherhood, i.e. you're misunderstanding all of these blank faces on the dance floor. What it is, is these people are high and they're happy. And you're saying, no, they aren't. They're basically atomized units. I think you said traveling in separately enhanced realities in this sort of situation of being neoliberal subjects. And everyone, you know, your friends who are uh, veteran uh, festival goers and burners, uh, been to Burning Man Festival, I mean, are trying to cheer you up. uh, And you're basically saying, no, there's something wrong with the way people are behaving in this way. But then you set your cutlery to one side and you say, I'm the goddamn Cinderella of carnival, real carnival, that is. (laughs) And then there is a flashback to this moment where you should have been on a book tour, but you're not on a book tour. You are in the streets of Ankara. There's tear gas flying everywhere. The hem of your long skirt is tucked into your belt. The shirt, your shirt is wrapped around your face. And you're running through the streets wearing only one shoe. And you meet this uh, man who's running after you, calling you Cinderella of the Revolution, with your other shoe. You quickly exchange information. You've just, he finds out you've just lost your job. You find out he's this rich uh, lawyer. And he's saying to you, buy Cinderella of the Revolution. <laughs> this is the real thing. And you part. Mm. And at that moment in the book, you talk about crowds and you talk about how pain and fear uh, disappears and how it manifests itself in the crowd. So with that very, very, very long interaction, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) introduction that I've put there, um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why and how you think fear and pain diminish in a crowd could you talk a little bit more about that
1: oh yeah uh well when you're telling retelling this story i went back to Gezi uprising which was uh, the real thing the real carnival that made me the syndrome of revolution with one shoe um the, you know, these two stories, uh, the chemical brotherhood that makes everyone so-called happy or, you know, entertain everyone uh, during the, uh, you know, fashionable entertainment of our age, which is clubbing or like dancing and so on. Um, and the other story uh, where... You know, I have to be fearing my life, fearing for my life, and so on during the uprising, during the protests. You know, when you juxtapose these two uh, stories, uh, one can see that uh, what we uh, the system we are living in is actually replacing the real joy with um, manufactured happiness, which is a which is a chemically induced chemically induced um, state of uh being high um it always you know bothers me maybe I'm too 19th century but I do mm-hmm. believe in communication uh, among people I do believe in talking maybe it's because I'm coming from Middle East as well you know, I, I I do you don't need
0: to apologize for that
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am unapologetically Middle Eastern yes um uh we, we, we think with words, and we communicate with words, and when there are no words, there is no communication, there is no connection. So what today's entertainment uh, is doing to people is, is removing words from, from in between the people. So they are becoming atomized, as I told in the book as well. And what is interesting to me is they think that they are happy in that state, which is... Uh, tragic uh, state of solitary actually. Um, and this replacing the joy with the certain kind of entertainment is something that is deeply embedded uh, in our culture, in today's culture. Uh, and sometimes I think that this is only done for people uh, to make people forget the real joy of oneness. Uh, the real joy of human connection. And this is, you know, the protests during Gezi or in Tahrir or in uh, Madrid or in Occupy moments all around the world. What people are experiencing, what the crowds are experiencing, uh, is a elevating moment, uh, and elevation and, and, and uh, a real joy of being together, even though the circumstances are... Uh, very dangerous I mean like mm-hmm. there's tear gas there's plastic bullets sometimes real bullets you are risking you're literally risking risking your life but then um, the joy of it it becomes unforgettable that is why uh, Gezi uprising happened in 2013 uh, but uh, and pe- many people have died many people suffered they lost limbs they lost their sights like people in Tahir of but, course if you, if you ask people today, uh, to those people who joined these protests, they, they wouldn't hesitate a second when telling that they, these were the best days of their lives. Um, what made the best days, what made them so beautiful was the joy of being present, one, physically present um, on the squares and being uh, being able to uh, express yourself and to exercise the right of being recognized as human beings with your words, with your voice, with your body, uh, and with the with your connection to other people. Um, and this real joy is something political. And when we are talking about uh, politics of crowds today, mm-hmm. I think we should underline this joy and we should uh mark this in the, in, you know, in political history as well, because most of the time when such protests are talked about, uh, when we discuss such protests, we talk about how many people were injured, the suppression that followed, or, you know, how many people were killed and so on. But, but then we have to see the other side of the story, which was the immense joy that uh, we experienced during Uh, the time we were physically present in a square or on the streets. uh, Because that was the thing that brought people uh, repeatedly uh, to the square, even though they were risking their lives. Um, And there was a lot of talking. There were no, you know, there were hardly any alcohol or any, you know, uh, chemical substance uh, that would create such a, Mm, such happiness, uh, but it was more like seeing people yell, yell, like yourself ending and ending um, the feeling of loneliness, uh, and that brought a lot of joy to people. And this has political significance that we have to emphasize, I think.
0: Mm. No, that's uh, I, I really like the way that you you put that, and I think I've just been reading this this book. Uh, here, um, uh, one of the hosts of ACFM, uh, one of the hosts of ACFM, uh, sent me very kindly called Crowd Netty which was written in mm. um, uh, 1960. But he has this this really beautiful way of writing about the open crowd, and the you know the open crowd is his concept of the real crowd, and the fact that it has it's 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 an entity in itself beyond uh, the sum of its parts and uh, and it and it always strives to grow that it becomes this kind of living body that strives to grow but it's also out of control and part of the 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 joy of it is that you don't know when more people are going to come as long as more people come you don't know where it's going to end up you don't exactly know what's going to happen but it enjoys the 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 bringing together of bodies as a central thing.
1: Let's let's talk about control now. Okay. Um let's uh, let's take two crowds, one in a big huge club.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh you know, dangling with the, with the like rhythm. It sounds like you have
0: just not had a good uh clubbing experience <laughs> I'm, I, I am I hostile
1: mean, towards crowds obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, go on. We'll go with it. We'll go with it. <laughs> no, um you were in a club. What versus, I am interested yeah. in what I am interested is to make people understand that, that uh, there is a joy hidden from them, and that's a political concept. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't see many people joining. These two concepts together, politics and joy. So um, we are uh, we've done, we've got a whole podcast on it, and I'll send it uh, to you. Afterwards. We're really I'm very happy to hear that because yeah. these two concepts has to be together, has to be thought together and discussed together uh, until they are uh, inseparably associated, to uh, 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 inseparably connected to each other. Couldn't so, uh, but people, you know, nowadays consider themselves having fun, being happy. Went in a club, dangling together, uh, ironically to a rhythm which is uh, resembling to heartbeat. Heartbeat is the first sound we hear before you are even before even we were born. We start hearing it when we are in the womb of our mother. So there is this uh, heartbeat-like, you know, rhythm in the club, and everybody is, you know playing along and so on. So I feel like we're in a womp all together, uh, and people feel like they are free there because they are, you know, using whatever. They are, in, you know, they're mm, surrendering to the rhythm and, you know, um, releasing all the tension and so on. Whereas what I see is infantilizing, um, you know, sound of uh, heartbeat which makes us feel like babies. And our uh, insanity, so to speak, mind is controlled within the confines of a club. Whereas, uh, you know, we are very much controlled there. Uh, On the other side, in the crowd, um, I do not agree with Canetti, there is a control. The body, the body of the crowd controls itself perfectly well, in fact. And we have seen this during all the Occupy movements and Gezi and Tahrir and s- similar other movements in Hong Kong lately. But the control uh, comes uh, in a very specific way, uh, which is not resembling to the conventional power uh, structure uh, that we know from state or any other political structure. It uh, The body controls itself uh without hierarchy and that is one thing that is you know that's we that we we are going to be talking a lot i think in coming decades mm-hmm. when we are restructuring the political uh, political institutions i am hoping that we are going to inspire from that kind of control that is uh, sel- that is based upon self-governance and um, individual responsibility and common sense well, when, when I say common sense, it sounds uh, like British common sense. I don't mean that. I mean uh, you know basics of human morality. Um, so there is a control there, but it is not from top to bottom. But it is um, in a uh, horizontal way. Uh, the the crowd is governing itself. So uh, I think it is the best. I think it is something. That might inspire all of us to reimagine the power itself, the idea of power itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's great, and I might I might have a misrepresented Canetti there. I think what I, <laughs> what I was trying to say is is there's movement to it, and as soon as. As that movement stops, because he has this other interesting concept of the closed crowd, and we'll get onto that, you mm-hmm. know, fascist. Uh, is there a fascist crowd um, thing in a second? But this idea that you know, almost there, there is a movement to it, and it grows and grows, and it and it and it, and it uh, undulates in, into different directions, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. that's interesting to think about in terms of the concept of the crowd and how that melds into, like you were saying, where the crowd became an occupation and where mm-hmm. people. People actually sat down, and how that kind cha- changes the movement of it, but also perhaps changes the expectation of it, and also who stays and who goes in an occupation um, mm-hmm. for better, for better or for um, worse. In that case, mm-hmm. I did have something. I had about three other things to say, and now I can't remember. So I think. <laughs> so I think. Um, may, so yeah, that was the thing I was going to say. I was going to say. I suppose. I'm interested in or we're interested in sort of what kinds of gatherings are can provide a function under neoliberalism and are kind of allowed to exist um and which ones aren't and that's obvi- and this on sometimes quite telling um and I think you know in the UK definitely we are defending uh, club culture and we're defending venues because those things are being taken away from us um, mm-hmm. because um, the way that you know clubs or spaces to congregate and then again on top of this we've got now covid which was one of the main reasons why we wanted to talk about this that we are not allowed to assemble in any form
1: Um. Well, is that so? Um, Well, I'm thinking um, Turkey, uh, especially when I say, is that so? Mm -hmm. Because uh, it depends on uh, the, you know, political desires of the political power, uh, who is going to assemble and who is not, who is Mm -hmm. allowed to assemble, who is not. Uh, For instance, in Turkey, all other protests are, uh, you know, very dangerous due to covid uh, but not, let's say, the opening of Hagia Sophia uh, as a, as a mosque. Uh, the cathedral uh, was uh, converted to mosque very recently by Mr Erdogan. Um, so uh, when people gathered in Hagia Sophia for a mass uh, praying, uh, they weren't there weren't any real Social regulations distancing. concerning mm-hmm. the COVID. So. Um, this is, of course, we all know that COVID has become a political tool in order to suppress suppress the critics of the regime in order to ban all the protests and so on in in several countries, and Turkey is one of them. So, yeah, uh, but on the other hand, you're right. I mean, like the you know we know how to deal with pain, despair, or. Anger by coming together and uh, Corona the pandemic obviously makes it impossible. So people are trying to find ways uh, to express their contempt for such regimes. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted you. Please no, go ahead. No, no,
0: no, 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 no not, not at all. Um, feel free to interrupt me. I'm very pro uh, inter- <laughs> interrupting. I don't have any problem with it. Um, so I guess it, both what you've just mentioned and in How to uh, Lose a Country in Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, um, there is a bit where you talk about Erdogan uh, trying to bring together, you know, his crowd to kind of emulate what happened um, in Gezi Park, uh, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And also, so I'm very interested in that, in that in in your in your lived experience, do you feel like being? You know, you've just given us a few minutes ago a fantastic description of of what it feels like to be in that kind of free crowd of people congregating, um, agitating for for the, a, a kind of cause. But but how does it feel like to be in a right wing or controlled or sort of government mandated crowd? Have you been in one, and have you noticed kind of the differences? Yeah.
1: Oh, well, uh, when I was doing, when I was still doing journalism, of course I did, I, I you know, for reporting, I was part of, not part of the, but I, I was witness. I was the witness of such crowds on several uh, occasions. Um, for, to start with, uh, I'm a woman. So such crowds uh, tend to be conservative and not very female friendly, so uh, to, <laughs> to put it, you know, to say mildly, the least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that. In a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it is threatening. It's hostile, and um, the, that feeling of joy, uh, that component of joy, let's say, uh, is not there at all. There is anger, and there are less words, which is interesting. Uh, the The vocabulary is very limited. Uh, so. And, you, well, I feel like uh, today what's happening is uh, the, mob, you know, utter mobilization, the complete mobilization of those crowds. It is organized ignorance, uh, mobilized by political intentions. And these crowds are not organic. Uh, And they are not growing bodies, as Kaneti says. Mm -hmm. And they are um, targeting uh, what the ruler wants them to target. So it is a, um, how to say it, it it is not a fertile being, that crowd, but rather a a sinister super male thing. Mm. Uh, I don't know how to put it otherwise. I'm, I'm looking for words to explain my disgust in, <laughs> yeah, in I mean, proper terms. No,
0: <laughs> that, 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 that sounded great. And I think, um, yeah, there's something because I think, you know, as as progressives, and I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me here, it's, you know, we're looking at the structures which cause human behavior. And I'm sure we'd like to think that those very people um, who were in that, you know, right wing organized authoritarian uh crowd could also be in the open joyous resisting crowd that it is possible for them to become those people and it's very much the form that determines how people behave is that is that fair
1: Hmm. i'm like this is a very very long discussion topic mm. of course <laughs> <laughs> um one of the things um that happens after you live under an oppressive regime long enough you start losing your faith in humankind so you start asking questions like is humankind evil in its essence like uh, so you start uh, suspecting this you know structures and you know they you, this this statement this um, uh, this understanding of human being, uh, he can be in that crowd or in that crowd, it de- crowd. It depends on the structure. That idea becomes a little bit contested, let's say. Because, um, well, yeah, uh, sometimes you start thinking in the wrong way. You start asking the wrong questions, such as, is human being evil uh, by nature? So uh, I am not even sure... Uh, you, I agree with that anymore, right. but you, I don't know if this is you know my mind is contaminated by too much evil or not. <laughs> I guess what I'm thinking is you know there's it's important for us to believe
0: that 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 the circumstances that people are put in and the and the forces which they um, are. Um, I agree fa- with the essence facing, of that yeah, argument, obviously. Yeah, I mean, in th- of, of, course, of course, in practice, I'm not expecting someone who, you know, holds right-wing reactionary views on one day to suddenly, you know, go to an amazing, beautiful, progressive op- occupation the next day in a crowd. I'm not at all expecting <laughs> that. But I'm I'm imagining in the same way that people become become right wing and become attracted to congregating in those sort of crowds when in those sort of crowds when the leader or when you know and support xyz compared to a spontaneous occupation it's like uh-huh. it goes both ways right people who are who are progressive can can stop being progressive and and vice versa and, vice versa and therefore find themselves in in those different kinds of Congregations. I mean, we all know people, especially when you're in the Middle East. You know, I know people who went from progressive to Islamic fundamentalist and back. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, and and you know, in the West, you know, I've met people who used to have really right wing views and other people who had progressive views and have have changed and how they then will interact with bodies in a public space they will obviously there will be a magnetic force pulling them from one to the other but i guess i'm thinking about the the form as well in that case
1: absolutely i mean, like um, if i didn't agree with this argument this um, you know perspective i wouldn't have written that book anyway Mm. how to lose a country because Mm -hmm. you know uh, western countries peoples of western countries consider themselves democratic um, civilized and so on and i try to tell them if you are put in uh, the circumstances that we have been through in turkey you would probably react the same way which is happening right now i mean like all these countries uh well let's talk about britain it is really not i wouldn't say shocking but quite painful to see that now there are hashtags uh, from british twitter users uh, for rule of law now it came to defending the rule of law in britain who would have thought but like 10 years ago when rule of law became disputed in Turkey, uh, any British uh, citizen could not have, no British citizen could not have thought they would have to defend rule of law in their own country. So what I, of course, I, you know, agree with the, you know, main argument. Uh, If right-wing populism, for instance, is you know, if a country is subjected to right-wing populism, Um, it it goes insane in the same way like any other country. That's why I came up with the seven steps, um, seven patterns, so so to speak, uh, of this political mechanism that drives every country crazy despite the differences among those countries. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, like, of course, the main argument is right. But then now, you know, I I try to express uh, my – and probably – um, you know, many people feel the same way, and you start suspecting the human being itself because the suppression is so immense. So and do you
0: mean that in terms of when you when you suspect the nature of human beings? Do you mean in terms of their behavior when they congregate?
1: Um, n- not not necessarily when they congreg- congregate. Now I'm writing a new book. I'm almost finished. Uh, it's called Together Ten choices for a better now after how to lose a country i became this international cassandra so to speak (laughs) i'm going around the countries and i'm telling them this is going to happen to you as well you're going to suffer as well i mean (laughs) you're
0: right frankly so (laughs) unfortunately unfortunately
1: i'm not proud but um yeah i I wasn't the most pleasant person (laughs) Um, when I was giving speeches in United States or all over Europe. So now I decided to be the Mary Poppins uh, of democracy, or, you know, like, for people, so I, 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 <laughs> so I, I wrote this book. It's almost finished, and it's going to come out in May next year. Um, and what I am thinking in this book is um, whos who, uh, what is human today? Uh, what is the human condition today? And since every country knows, uh, you know, more or less what political insanity looks like, since every country is contaminated by right wing populism, right wing populist leaders with authoritarian inclinations, now we can sit down together Mm -hmm. and find a way out. Not only, I'm not talking about getting, how do we get rid of these leaders? Because I do think that it's bigger than leaders, these right wing populist leaders. I think it is. Uh, th- what we are going through globally is um, uh, the result of a crumbling system. And while a si- when a system uh, collapses, mm, the human being collapses as well. So my question is, how do we rescue the idea of human from this collapse, uh, system collapse? So uh, because many people... I mean, like, this polarization in every country begins the same way. You start dehumanizing the other. Um, you know, imagine the Brexit ears and, you know, pro-Europeans in yeah, Britain. Yeah. Or Trump supporters and Trump critics in the United States. Once the polarization trickles down to the uh, lower levels of society, uh, neighbors become, uh, host, um, you know, enemies to each other, friends become hostile to each other. The marriages break down because of this. I'm like, we've seen this in Turkey happening and now it's happening in, in other countries as well. Um, over of the individual, rela- you know, intimate relations become a sociological problem, so mm-hmm. to speak, societal problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and when that happens, um, You know, that idea of human is evil, that's why we are going through this, uh, you know, perspective, uh, becomes really dominant uh, in the society. And I wanted to, you know, I am kind of fast forwarding the film for the Western societies again, and I am uh, talking from the point where they, I'm assuming they will arrive soon, which is, is human evil question. Uh, because we've been there in Turkey. I mean, like we experienced this as well, uh, and still experiencing. So yeah, we are still experiencing it. Uh, so I am trying to deal with that question now. I am done with right wing populist leaders, as you can see.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've done that. I've been, done
1: that. Well, I, I've done my bit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You know. um,
0: what I'd really like to talk about now is. Going back to um, what you discussed just a few minutes ago about the being a woman in a crowd uh, and being a woman in a crowd in the Middle East. Um, mm-hmm. And I wondered if you would like to speak a little bit about your experience um, in Gezi Park and you know the protests that happened in in Turkey and and whether you thought, you know, the crowd, whether the crowd was a more egalitarian crowd in your experience. And also you were in Tahrir. So we, you weren't Tahrir, mm-hmm. is that right? So Tahrir, yeah, I was. Cairo. So we were both there at, at the same time. Um, I co-edited a book... Um, saying the story of those 18 days called Tweets from Tahrir. And it's recently that. published in Turkey. Yes, so and, and it has been translated Congratulations, into Turkish. really. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I, to be honest, Alex did a lot of the, the the work with this. I was trying to hold down a full-time job at the same time as doing this, at the same time as having come back from a revolutionary moment. So, you know, <laughs> the beginning of 2011 um, was, was a very, it was a crazy time in my life. But maybe just by way of introduction, f- for me, it was, you know, and you've mentioned this and already, but it was such a profound moment for me mm-hmm. to be in Tahrir, because I had left Egypt, you know, 10 years before that, you know, and I'd moved to England. And one of the main reasons I'd moved to England is because of how... I was constantly sexualized on the street. So Egypt, I will happily say, is I um, I confidently say is the harassment of women capital of you know probably one of the capitals of of the world. And I could not leave my house without being harassed every. I mean every every day. Um, And I thought I I I constantly am being set back into my identity as female and just couldn't live as a person. So that's one of the main reasons why I left, Uh, and you know, and there are structural reasons which I can go about for on about for ages of why Cairo uh, in the beginning of uh, the the two thousand, you know, when I left two thousand and one was like that. But at the moment when everything kicked off in Cairo, I, as I say in the beginning of the book, I I sent an email to my boss and I was like, right, this is. I literally wrote a bucket list of what I wanted to do before I went because I didn't know if I was going to come back alive. (laughs) and I um I said this is one chance I'm Mm -hmm. going so we got on a plane and I luckily I got there after the really really difficult day where the um it's called Ma'raq al-Gamal in 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 Arabic where they brought the camels in (laughs) into the middle of the square and you can tell me more about when you were there so I was there for like the good bit um so to speak but the reason I'm saying all of this is because my experience standing in Tahrir in a crowd was I've never experienced anything like that in Egypt before, and I haven't experienced it since, which is that the male gaze disappeared mm-hmm. and the male hands on my body disappeared I was i was a person um, and yeah, I've never this experienced is, that this
1: before like, You almost brought tears to my eyes so Yes, I was a person Is a would be a great title for a book to start with. Yeah. Uh, but it is so painful to say this. Um, yeah, I was a person too in Gizi. And many people felt the same thing, I guess. Not only female, but male as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was a person. Um, you know, I, I think the crowd becomes female. I don't mean, uh, when I say female, I don't mean uh, women dominated. I mean the female in the male is free to uh, live itself as well in those moments of history when such joyful crowds come together uh, to be recognized as human beings, to ask for to be recognized as human beings. Do you think it's it's the com like it's the common enemy that does this?
0: I mean it felt like people were in a really almost bizarre and natural way, just very present, and everyone knew why they were there and suddenly there wasn't any you know harassment or violence or judgment on how much you know, money people had or not had or what class you were from or what gender or where you came from. like All of that disappeared. It was just people doing hilarious stuff. Like <laughs> hilarious. The Egyptians are funny anyway, but like hilarious. And you know, you know, you talked about that as well. And it's and it's this this just endless togetherness of just people, 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 people. But of course, as you mentioned, like, you know, and, uh, and we say in the introduction to, to, to the book tweets from Tahrir, which nobody paid attention to when we did all of the media interviews, is that the reason why what happened happened and we disposed the first dictator that we did in eighteen. Uh, in 18 days, and we had in 7,000 years, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, is because of the bodies of people putting themselves on the line, and the people who were killed, and the people who lose, lost their arms, etc. It's not because of Twitter,
1: right? Mm-hmm.
0: But, exactly. But it's, you know, although, you know, Twitter was a good organizing tool uh, and also a good tool for broadcast because the government had kind of cut uh, <laughs> all, all, all official, there was very uh, clear official lines coming out. But, but it, 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 it was just this kind of incredible space. And it was so strongly marked by the fact that men were not looking at me in the same way that they looked at me for the last you know, 10 years of living in Egypt. It was just, I was not being looked at in that way. Uh, And it is so significant because it's completely different because your life as a woman in that circumstance
1: is completely different. Mm -hmm. Well, when I talk about Tahrir Gezi or similar uh, moments... But it wasn't uh, the same,
0: just just to clarify, like in the atmosphere in terms of what women could wear and in terms of harassment, I don't get the impression that it was the same in... You know, Istanbul and Ankara, or was it was it like that in Turkey too? Well, it's much freer. I I cannot,
1: I I cannot compare uh, Turkey to Egypt in that uh, sense, like the harassment sense, because I've been to Egypt. I know what you're talking about. It is horrific. It's really like terrifying. It's horrific.
0: horrific. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, But what I uh, what I'm trying to say is, in those moments of history. I think people did not only protest, they also created miniature glimpses of the life that they want to live. They invented the future. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I talk about such uh, moments of history, uh, some people think that I am romanticize- romanticizing those moments. And some several people think that, okay, what happened? Nothing. After that, nothing was, you know, it, it left no mark on politics, you know, neither Tahir nor Gazi. I do believe that we have to keep talking about these moments of history because it changed something. It didn't change the political institutions. Well, I mean, like in Egypt, you got rid of the dictator for sure, but then it was replaced with another one. Mm -hmm. Uh, It didn't change the political institutions, let's put it that way. But these moments of history changed the zeitgeist immensely. And it changes what's possible. Because if, no one can it, take that reality away.
0: Like, no one can take that experience away from people's... B- and again, we're using this term bodies, but I think it's really useful here. Like You, you cannot take it away from people's bodies that they had those, that experience. No one can take that away from me or the you know millions of other people
1: in Egypt yeah. or
0: the squares around
1: the world. Absolutely. Uh, and also, uh, yeah, it's a memory that cannot be erased, obviously. But it is not only a memory. I think it's going to be the inspiration of the new world uh, we'd like to see, we'd like to live in Um, without romanticizing or without, without putting it down, without undermining it. We have to be talking about these moments of history to remind ourselves that we have done it once so we can do it again. Mm -hmm. It cannot be repeated. I'm not saying that, but like, It changed the zeitgeist in that regard because if you look at the world history since 1980s, the dominant motto of the world is uh, there is no alternative. So in 2000, you know, beginning of 2000s, Occupy moments, and, you know, Tahir, Gizi, and such, what's happening in Hong, Hong Kong as well, it's telling us that there is an alternative. Nobody's sure what that alternative is, obviously, but then they are removing that motto that built today's world. So that is important. That has to be, you know, noted. That has, to, you know, we have to recognize the significance of that. Uh, going back to being a woman mm. in such a crowd, uh, uh, yes, I felt like a person and probably many male members of the crowd felt the same thing. Uh but I think those, uh, we talked about this in the beginning, that self-governing body of the crowd is also a female existence. I came to think that as well. Mm. Because it, as I said before in the beginning of this conversation, it changed the uh, the very definition of power. So it changed the power from something hierarch- hierarchical, um, hierarchical, <laughs> uh, yeah, <Tickle. laughs> I stumbled. It removed it the hierarchy me. from the uh, uh, from the definition power, yeah. and it replaced with caring and compassion. So, and it had a power. That crowd had a power, and that power was built upon caring, compassion. And the understanding of leaving nobody behind. So the, I, I think this is a nurturing idea of power, which in my head is associated with femaleness. So those crowds are female crowds in their essence. I think uh, it's
0: also because you know the, the squares were not covered in urine, which is <laughs> which tells me
1: it's a female yeah.
0: crowd. You know, <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. Um, um, so yeah. We, Being a, well, I, um, I became a journalist when I was 19, uh, and I looked younger than I already was. So I was constantly trying to look older, but I also tried to look powerful. Mm -hmm. What is looking powerful for a woman? Um, I acquired my characteristic walk when I was 19. I'm stomping, Mm -hmm. which damages my ankles and my knees and everything. And I, am, uh, I acquired this walk through journalism because when, when you're a journalist, a female journalist, a young female journalist, you have to make people respect you in some way so that they, can answer, they, will, they answer your questions and so on. They take you seriously. My body reshaped itself through journalism. It is interesting. After I was fired due to my political columns, uh, I had to reteach myself how to walk like a normal person because I was no longer required to, uh, you know, appear as powerful. So I am since then, since 2012, uh, I am relearning how to walk. I'm serious. Seri- I'm serious about this. Yes, it's yes, just, yes. No, no. I completely understand. I, I completely I am, understand
0: what you mean. I do the same thing um, with my shoulders. So I have yeah. a kind of swagger when I'm walking into a room because I want to have presence. So I, yeah. I, and, and you know, and the same as if I'm walking at home at night on a dark road, I also adjust. You know, and w- all women do this, like to yeah. lesser or greater yeah. degrees. You adjust you're very aware of making yourself small and or big. And, you know, we shoulder that burden, especially if you're, you know, in somewhere like a crowd. You're like, how do I behave at this moment for my safety and or to be able to get my point across? Do I make myself big, small, whatever?
1: Exactly. And those crowds, in those crowds, you are not constantly sucked in and spitted out by this uh, existential vacuum operating on your body. You can be in the size you actually are. So that crowd gives you not only the right to be act like a person and be treated like a person, but also it gives you the tr- it gives you your true size, which is so important because mm. I realize that uh, female spine is constantly, you know, uh, diminished or puffed up <laughs> uh, by by the things that we are talking about right now. Uh, for in certain circumstances, it. it reshapes itself constantly. So um, I really like crowds. I really like this revolutionary crowds gives gives us our our right to stand straight. Uh, in our true size yeah so this is important this is healthy yes, I,
0: would say. I, love, I, love, I love that and I you know I was thinking recently I thought I'm thinking about this again I'm I'm really interested in I've mentioned this a little bit earlier like form versus content uh, you know debate I take the form versus content kind of form uh, sorry um, mm-hmm. a concept to, to, mm-hmm. to a lot of different things I'm thinking about and I was thinking you know did I get into left-wing politics because of the content of the politics, because, you know, of my, I, I tend to think of myself as a uh, a moral person. I do think about it in terms of morality. I do think about, you know, right and, and wrong uh, and justice. Did I get into that because of that? Or did I get into it because of the crowd at a demonstration was so addictive? Because I, you know, I, I went on my first demonstration, when I was 20 in the UK. And, you know, as I've spoken on the, the show before, I joined a, you know, samba band or 40 people playing music in the street. And, you know, I basically did that for 15 years. Going to demonstrations was so a, a big part of me. And of course, you know, I absolutely would not go to a demonstration. I don't care about the cause or an occupation or tahrir or whatever. However, I think there was, there's such a feeling of release and relief of to your subjectivity when you are in that kind of crowd. And it, f- and it gives you that egalitarianism. But I'd not thought about it in terms of your true size. So that's, a, that's really helpful for me to, <laughs> to think
1: about. But yeah. Um, on that matter, um, you know, in this new book, I'm thinking about friendship as a political uh, connection that can be beyond political mem- party membership or comradeship mm. and so on. We've also How done p- an episode on friendship. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <also> lovely. <funny. laughs> um, you know, why we're mm. going to those, why we are supporting or why we are part of this uh, progressive crowds, let's say, because they are offering friendship, whereas uh, the conservative crowds, uh, or, you know, uh, authoritarian crowds they are offering uh, protection in return of submission That's which is which is not a equal and just relationship whereas friendship is the ultimate form of justice in human connection so that is why we are choosing progressive crowds because we want to be friends because Friendship is the place where we are in our true size as well. Mm. Um, so our, our form and content, in that sense, is uh, compatible to each other. Mm. They are inseparable in a way.
0: But isn't so, there? Yeah. Isn't there also mm. something about being able to genuinely, you know, like you did with you know, rich lawyer who ran after you with your ballet pump uh, with, with the tear gas <laughs> running. Everywhere. Like, isn't there also the opportunity for genuine, authentic connection with people who are not your friends? Like, there is no history to this relationship beyond the fact that you're in this space at this time and you know why you're there. In this crowd, you know why you're there. You might not start as knowing why you're there. You might have stumbled along to the crowd. But once you're a part of this, um, this, like you said, this organic, fertile being, you're able to very easily, you know, and especially for somewhere like the UK, where in, you know, in the south and in greater London, there isn't a culture of just talking to anyone randomly, Mm -hmm. especially at this time. (laughs) what you know even last year when i i went along to to see what extinct was happening with the extinction rebellion stuff it's like you can talk to anyone you can walk in and talk to anyone and that that there's it's the the free or you know you can eye contact you can make eye contact with someone because you're you're part of this experience together Mm -hmm. and it changes your day and your week and your month you know (laughs) as a human being
1: Absolutely, it refreshes your uh, faith in humankind yeah. for sure. Uh, when I talk about friendship, I don't talk about friends uh, being friends, intimate relation, or so on. I talk, uh, I talk about friendship in an abstract form. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you say, you know, even you don't know, you are, you, you can be friendly or you can establish friendships right away right then because that crowd uh, offers you this abstract friendship where everybody is equal and where there will be justice that's why it it attracts so many people and that is why there is joy there Um, and trust as well i think and trust. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's an absolutely which I think is, is really. I mean,
0: it's definitely from you know a female perspective. You know, there's the, <laughs> that the trust is so central because we've had so many interactions, or we, at least we perceive uh, interactions with you know the male crowd as quite different.
1: But then I want to tell something a little bit. Uh, you know, let's um, what, if it, if we talk about Tahir Gezi feeling like a person as a female and so on. Um, I am like witnessing, I am following what's happening in Western societies as well nowadays. So uh, what we attributed to darker nations, quote and unquote, uh, as being oppressive of women, you know, where women are not counted as persons and so on, I think this... Mm, this perspective, this understanding of women or female, let's say, is now spreading towards the Western countries. I mean,
0: 100%. Well. And you said it in, uh, I think you were doing a talk in Bristol, where you said misogyny is the wingman of fascism. Absolutely. And I love that. So, and, oh, yes, yes. Oh, we're definitely going that way, way here. I mean, the, 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 the misogyny in all of its textures is gl- growing in the UK. It's not experientially the same. I can still walk down the street you know, with less yeah, or, I mean, less of the male gaze, but, but uh, much less of the male gaze. But in you know, in Greater London where I am, but yes, it's 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 coming. I mean, it's 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 on Twitter. It's in legislation. It's on the street.
1: Yeah, I'm like, um, and this was um, associated, uh, you know, the oppression on women were was associated with Islam and you know certain practices of Islam for such a long time. Uh, that, you know, I think Western societies thought themselves a sort of immune to this misogyny that would come together with the package of fascism. Um, which reminded me, by the way, in Amsterdam, when I said that, you know, Netherlands would be also subjected to right-wing populism, a journalist asked me, but, you know, we are... Christian countries, <laughs> you know there are people, and you did a massive like, people. and Facebook. yeah, oh god, yeah. Here we go. I mean yeah. it's in the book. Uh, I think it's in the book as well. So yeah, uh, you know, mis- as I, as you said, I'm like I keep telling this misogyny is the wingman of fascism, and the problem is uh, some Western societies does not uh, see the alarm bells ringing, not enough. Uh, because these this misogyny does not come like in overnight uh, beating up the women. It's just this insignific- insignificant change in uh, law or, you know, this um, a little bit rise in the self-confidence of the male around, uh, on the street and so on. I think, you know, we should be aware that this is coming towards the civilized societies as well. People should be more aware of this. I think... Americans are aware because otherwise the pussy riot wouldn't have happened. Uh, it's not pussy riot. I'm sorry. The, you know the <laughs> yeah, yeah, women's yeah, yeah. walk yeah. against pr- Trump, Trump, which we had yeah. here as well. Uh, absolutely, uh, but then people should be, you know, ready to face uh, the worst. I would say it's, it, but it's, just, it's
0: it's it's interesting though because it is really difficult because to 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 see, to see if you're not looking out for it i think if you don't have that structural analysis it's i mm-hmm. uh, you know there's historically one of the most successful parts of patriarchy is that women doubt themselves first. So, you know, you'll get more looks in the street or, you know, this tiny bit of legislation will be changed or not changed. Or like suddenly men start behaving this way or that way in public space. And the the first thing that women do, I think, everywhere is go, it must be me. Let me check myself. I'll go talk to people first rather than an instinct be like, this is bullshit. And I think where so, yeah. women have tried to say this is bullshit, there's all sorts of other caveats. And obviously, as we mentioned in the beginning, with COVID, there is that big thing, which, which is, you know, it's, it's the thing, which is making everyone go, we'll deal with this first and we'll get to you women later. Do you know? Which yeah. over history has always happened. But what I'd like to t- to do to take us back to the crowds on this is just very quickly... Maybe, I realised you know both reading your work uh, and Canetti and other people yesterday. Um, I've never been in a crowd of just women. In fact, mm. no, that's not true. I think I have been once. You're talking about the the demonstrations. I mean, I, I've I've played in you know forty piece female bands where I've mostly been surrounded yeah. by women in in the street, and it, and it's very powerful and it feels different. Um, but I think there's this only once this Trump demonstration where it was a women's demonstration it was only women but i think the theme, the, the the truly women only crowd is mm-hmm. is different it's got a different it is powerful but it has a different power but if you notice and you know you tell me if i'm wrong i have never seen any any that reflected in any media i've never seen a picture I've never seen a movie. I've never read a book. I've never listened to a podcast. Uh, you know, where Ooh. it's it's a not a not not a pack, not a group, a crowd of just women. And I think that's interesting.
1: Hmm. That is interesting. Yes, but then we will be seeing it for sure. Uh, you know, because times are changing. Well, misogyny can be the wingman of fascism, but then we are in a very interesting point in history, uh, as women. Uh, we know more than we had uh, any time in history. We own, possess like property more than any time in history. We are educated more than ever, and we have political experience more than ever. I mean, like this male crisis, which is uh, accompanying the you know, fascist inclinations, is not for no reason. We are uh, very ready to rule the world, and this creates some backlash. That's true, and this is a fact. And um, when you are ruling the history, you are writing the history as well. So it's very close, I think. We are very, very close to that point where stories are written only by women and only about women and so on uh my my uh, question would be, would women read those stories because I noticed it in myself as well uh, you know not now but before I noticed it uh, we are more prone to understanding life through male experience uh, we are reading male writers, but not uh, many. Male readers are curious about female experience. I mean, female experience. The statistics are
0: horrific
1: of men I
0: buying. I mean, I think it's ninety percent of fiction written by women is bought by women.
1: Yeah, Something but ridiculous also like women. Maybe not enough women but, are reading w- women either. So that's that's, oh, that's interesting. You know, that might be the first step. To change uh, women read the both. Of apparently, I'm just talking about
0: UK statistics. So the UK statistics mm-hmm. on fiction is that women read fiction written by men and fiction written by women. Um, mm-hmm. And I, this is in the broadest sense. But men, I think it's eighty to ninety percent of sale books bought by men are uh, male authors.
1: And also, we can cheap. add that to the you know, long list of what we are doing better now. Women read more than men since decades. Yes. In general. Yeah. So yeah, this is this this, you know, naturally changes uh the zeitgeist, changes uh, the patterns of history. So we're going to be seeing a lot of women only crowds, I think, very soon. Yeah,
0: that's that's interesting. What what will it look like, <laughs> and what what will it be? Beautiful, like? I would say. <laughs> and, and of course, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you have the same perspective, but I think, as you were saying, you know, why do women like not want those stories or not want that? And I think, you know, there is a tension with um, women who are brought up, you know, under increased Islamicization, like you know myself uh, in Egypt, and and presumably, you know, you as well, mm-hmm. um, where you're kind of suspicious of this segregation because it's like, oh, I don't want to be in these women-only spaces because you associate that with Islamism. Whereas, of course, when I then got my political education in, you know, broader feminism, I understood the importance of, you know, women-only spaces or women-led spaces from a different perspective. So I find that I struggle with that because... You know, I don't want a society where, you know, you walk into a room and the men are on one side and the women are on the other side because that makes my skin crawl because that reminds me of Islamism. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it's just an
1: interesting one to think about from, an, from a Middle Eastern yeah. perspective. Just a funny story about this. Uh, when, you're, when you're a journalist, you are something in between always. Uh, you are not considered a real woman, but then always... Uh, you are not considered a real woman, but then you are not journalism in rural areas, especially. Uh, you are invited to the men's section but then you are not treated, you know, everybody is like kind of tense because of your presence mm-hmm. as a woman. Mm-hmm. And then you end up in the women's section, uh, like as time goes by. And then women do not know what to, to do, do with, with you. you. They of go, course. they send you back to the men's section. I, like, I've been through this for so many wow. times. So, I mean, I no, know what you're I'm like talking a, about from Egypt. Yeah, I know exactly journalism is about. like you are, you are becoming not sexless, but like, we don't know what to do uh, with you. Hesitant. Yeah. You know, the entire you don't space fit either of these berserk with your sex. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I,
0: and there are so many stories over history from all cultures. You know, when women started wearing trousers, when women started riding bicycles in the UK, it was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, it was like yeah, a big why? hang on a minute. You can't wear trousers. Yeah. Um, Great. We've have had a fantastic experience uh, having this discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I loved it. Great. <laughs> I've got a couple more things I want to ask you. Do you have on the top of your head your one of your favorite experiences of being in a crowd?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, like, except for Gizzi in Buenos Aires, uh, when the economic crisis happened... Uh, I was there to report, and I was with the piquetero movement. Um, They were barricaders. Uh, They were closing down the main arteries that entered the city. And I was there with very young women uh, fighting the police, and some of them had their babies uh, with them. So I think that was one of the most... uh, interesting and joyful experiences as well. As well as Porto Alegre, uh, the first World Social Forum. It was at night and we were drinking caipirinha and doing salsa and (laughs) talking about revolution and so on. I was very young, by the way. And so, yeah, I think these were the best experiences. Latin America, all the progressive people, music and everything it was it was amazing thanks for sharing that with us i think for, oh, yeah. for
0: some of your different <laughs> um uh, books that you've written um and people should go and check those out as well because it definitely sets a certain mood
1: so aj thank you so much for speaking to me thank you Nadia. you were awesome thank you thank thanks you. a lot this broadcast is brought
0: to you by novara media go to Novaramedia.com support